Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In February 1999, a 43-year-old woman rented a car in San Francisco, California, and began a road trip to Yosemite National Park. She was joined by her 15-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old exchange student who was a family friend and was living with them at the time. Like the millions of other people who visit the park each year, the trio took in Yosemite's towering granite cliffs and ancient forests, staying two nights at a small motel just outside the park. Following the sightseeing trip, they were scheduled to tour a college one of the girls was thinking of attending, located a couple of hours away in Stockton, California. But they never made it. Police and worried family members began a frantic search, traveling up and down roads and looking over embankments without any luck. There was no sign of the trio or their car. They had disappeared without a trace. I'm Kathy Kanzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, I share the story of the Yosemite Park Killer. Yosemite National Park is located in east-central California, about three hours east of San Francisco. The sprawling park lies in the heart of the Sierra Nevada mountain range and was established in 1890. Here the visitor can relax amid the quiet grandeur of Yosemite and absorb the ever-beautiful moods of an ever-changing landscape. Among its many breathtaking sites are rock walls that soar up to 1,200 meters from the valley floor, numerous waterfalls, including the majestic Yosemite Falls, and huge peaks and domes like the El Capitan and Half Dome. Plus, Yosemite is home to three groves of ancient trees, the giant sequoias. Some of them are over 3,000 years old. It's a magical place for nature lovers, newlyweds, family road trips, and international visitors. And with everything it has to offer, it's no surprise that Yosemite is one of the most heavily visited national parks in the U.S., with annual attendance topping 3 million visitors. Among those visitors in 1999 was Carol Sund from Eureka, California a remote north coast town about 700 kilometers north of Yosemite National Park. The mother of four children led a busy life. She helped run her father's real estate business and was an active volunteer in her community. But even still, she made the time to take a special trip to Yosemite with her 15-year-old daughter, Julie, a bubbly sophomore and competitive cheerleader, along with a 16-year-old exchange student who was living with them. Silvina Peloso was from Argentina, and her family had been longtime friends with the Sons before moving to the U.S. for a three-month foreign exchange student program. The shy teen who dreamed of coming to the United States was nearing the end of her stay, and Carol Sund wanted to show her the natural wonders of Yosemite Park before she headed back home. On Sunday, February 14, 1999, The threesome took in some of the sights at Yosemite, then checked into the Cedar Lodge, a motel located just outside the western edge of the park in El Portal. They were last seen on Monday, grabbing a dinner of hamburgers at a 50s-themed diner attached to the motel. Then they rented some VHS movies in the lobby to watch back in their room. 
The next day, they were scheduled to drive to Stockton, California, two hours away, to visit the University of the Pacific, where Julie was thinking of going to school. When Carol's husband, Jens Sund, found out they hadn't made it, he immediately began to panic and reached out to police for help. Originally, it was thought the group became lost on the road or injured in a car crash, but an extensive land and aerial search turned up nothing, something Jens Sund thought was strange, since the rental car they were driving was bright red. If it was out there, surely someone would have spotted it. Then a discovery 200 kilometers away took the investigation in a different direction. Two days after the group was reported missing, police told the media that a teenage girl walking to school in Modesta, California, found Carol's son's wallet with her credit card still inside. The wallet was found in the middle of the street next to a center median, uh, like it had either been thrown from the car or dropped there. At that point, the FBI joined the case, and they said they were looking at the possibility of a kidnapping or carjacking. Although they stressed they hadn't found a ransom note or any other evidence to back up that theory. In response, Jens Sund, who was VP of the real estate business owned by his wife's family, announced that he would personally offer a reward of $250,000 for information leading to the trio's safe return. Silvina's parents flew in from Argentina and joined the army of volunteers that handed out missing persons posters in Modesto and in and around Yosemite Park. Raquel and Pepe Peloso, along with Jens Sund, stayed at a Holiday Inn in Modesto, which had become a makeshift headquarters for the search. As each day passed, hope of finding the missing group alive diminished. And it was not for a lack of trying. The FBI looked for signs of life like credit card transactions and ATM withdrawals. There were none. They searched with helicopters and airplanes, with climbing ropes, motorbikes and bloodhounds, and found nothing. Carol's son's sister told reporters, it's like the earth just swallowed them up. Ten days after the group went missing, the FBI began to scale back its search and rescue operation. And they began treating it as a criminal investigation. Agents said they were now operating under the assumption that a crime had occurred and that the trio may be dead. The mysterious case sparked widespread interest across North America and beyond. People magazine ran a cover story on the disappearance, and family members were interviewed by nearly every major news outlet in the U.S., and of course, it caught the attention of popular tabloid TV shows like Hard Copy. It's the FBI case that has all the elements of a Hollywood thriller, a missing millionaires, a huge reward, and clues the cops just can't figure out. In Argentina, the case was also front-page news for weeks. It's hard to pinpoint why exactly this case garnered such intense public interest. But author Dennis McDougall, who wrote a book about the disappearance, believes it was partly because of the connection to the much-beloved Yosemite National Park. Yosemite, you have to understand, is a um, sort of a, an Elysian fields for um, for California. It's, it's a, uh, a hallowed place, and the idea has always been that that's where everyone goes to uh, reignite themselves, uh, reinvent themselves, uh, get back to nature, and uh, the whole um, the idea that there would be. Uh, anything as heinous as the murder in the first place is 
is out of the question. For some, the case was intriguing, maybe even frightening, because the trio was engaged in a normal family activity when they disappeared, a road trip, something nearly everyone does at some point. So it gave people the feeling that, hey, that could have happened to me or someone I know. The massive search involving 100 FBI agents and six other law enforcement agencies continued for more than four weeks without turning up any clues other than Carol's wallet. But then, when nearly all hope was lost, there was a break in the case. Forty-year-old Jim Powers was out for a hike when he saw a burned-out car tucked into the forest off the highway that runs through Yosemite. Initially, he wasn't sure if it was the red 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix that everyone had been looking for. But he had an uneasy feeling it might be. He circled the burned-out hull of a car, then grabbed the license plate, which had melted off, and headed home to call the local sheriff. The license plate ended up being a match to the car rented by Carol Sund more than a month earlier. When investigators arrived at the heavily wooded area about 65 kilometers from Yosemite, they found the car stripped to bare metal by the heat of a fire. On the ground nearby lay a pair of women's hiking boots and a Coke can. Inside the trunk, police made a grisly discovery. Two burned bodies that would later be identified as belonging to Carol and Sylvina. But there was no sign of Julie. Agents searched what was left of the car and found a roll of film from a camera. When it was developed, photos showed how Carol and the girls spent their final hours, playing in the snow, skating on a frozen lake, and posing at familiar Yosemite sites. After the car was removed, Carol's son's parents and her brother trekked to the site by way of a steep and muddy logging road covered with pine cones. With the smell of burned wood still permeating the air, they placed vases of mountain wildflowers and a small white cross where Carol and Sylvina were found. Following the discovery, more than 60 investigators, aided by a team of specially trained dogs, performed a methodical grid search of the heavily wooded area, which by now was covered by a new blanket of snow. There was a sliver of hope that Julie might still be alive, but investigators found no clues about the teen's whereabouts. Then, eight days later, police received an anonymous letter, claiming to be from the killer, telling them where to look for Julie's body. Written on a lined piece of paper, the letter contained a crude, hand-drawn map and the words, We had fun with this one, scrawled across the top. The map sent investigators to an area that was halfway between the Cedar Lodge in El Portal and where the burned-out car was found. Within seconds of their arrival, a tracking dog found Julie's body near a trail leading to a popular lookout point near a reservoir. Meantime, as police continued their search for suspects, author Dennis McDougall says they began to focus on a loose-knit group of ex-cons, many of them meth users and drug dealers, living in and around Modesto, where Carol's son's wallet was found. The foothills of, uh, of the, um, the Sierras back then in the, in the mid-90s had become kind of a hotbed for uh, meth cooking. And uh, there were... Um, biker gangs that uh, were uh, into the manufacture and sales of, of methamphetamines. They tracked down their suspects to uh, a handful of these uh, these clowns and 
And that was, uh, that was their prime suspects for uh, several months. In particular, investigators were looking at a 42-year-old registered sex offender from Modesto, as well as his 32-year-old half-brother, who also had a lengthy criminal record that included sexual assault and battery. They, along with several other suspects, were picked up in a series of sweeps and were being held in jail on unrelated charges. None of the suspects were officially named by the FBI, and no charges were filed related to the murders. But as spring turned to summer, FBI agent James Maddock, who was in charge of the case, tried to put the public at ease. He said although more work needed to be done before the FBI was ready to announce arrests or indictments, they believed that the people responsible for the abduction and murder of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were in custody. The announcement was a relief. If the killers were behind bars, surely Yosemite National Park was safe to visit. But that turned out to be a deadly assumption. In the summer of 1999, 26-year-old Joey Armstrong, a passionate environmentalist, was working as a naturalist for the Yosemite Institute, a nonprofit organization that teaches children about wildlife. She lived in a cabin with two co-workers in Forresta, a tiny community in a remote part of Yosemite Park, about 30 minutes away from the Cedar Lodge where Carol, Julie, and Sylvina stayed during their sightseeing trip five months earlier. On Thursday, July 22nd, Joey was home alone, packing up her pickup truck and getting ready to leave for a weekend trip to visit with friends in the Bay Area. But Joey didn't make it, and a worried friend alerted police. By 7.30 the next morning, a dozen park rangers were dispatched to Joey's cabin. When they arrived, they knew something wasn't right. The front and back doors of the cabin were ajar. The stereo inside was on. A pair of men's sunglasses were found on the living room floor. They were bent and damaged. Joey's truck was still parked out front, but she was nowhere to be seen. Six hours later, they made a gruesome discovery. And I should warn you that what I'm about to say is upsetting. Joey's body was partially submerged in a stream less than 300 meters from her cabin, and she had been decapitated. When news of the crime broke in the media, the abduction and murder of Carol Sund, along with her daughter and friend, immediately came to mind. Perhaps there was a serial killer on the loose in Yosemite National Park. But FBI agent James Maddox said they had absolutely no reason to believe there was any connection between the two cases. Agents searched the area for clues and spoke to people who lived near Joey in one of 35 cabins off Forrester Road. One of the people they talked to mentioned seeing a vehicle near Joey's cabin the day before, a blue and white International Scout, which is a unique off-road vehicle, making it pretty easy to spot. Authorities put out an alert for the vehicle, and within a few hours, it was found parked on the side of a highway inside Yosemite Park. The two officers who stopped to investigate got out and looked around. They edged down a gently sloping escarpment to the Merced River below. At the riverbank, they found a tall, sandy-haired man sitting completely naked in the sun, smoking a joint. After asking for his ID, the officers learned the nude sunbather was 37-year-old Carrie Stainer, a maintenance man at the Cedar Lodge in El Portal. Stainer denied being anywhere near Joey's cabin. 
Officers asked to search his backpack, but he refused to let them. And without a search warrant, there wasn't much they could do. So they took a few pictures of Stainer's blue and white International Scout and then left him sitting by the river. Meantime, back at Joey's cabin, investigators had discovered a number of clues, including tire tracks. Later that night, they compared the tracks to the photos the officers had taken of Stainer's scout, and they looked to be a match. So investigators headed to the Cedar Lodge, where Stainer lived in a room above the restaurant to question him further. But when they arrived, it was too late. After the encounter with police by the river, Stainer returned to the lodge and packed up some camping supplies, clothes, and a few other belongings. He even sold his TV and VCR to another employee. Then Stainer got in his blue and white International Scout and drove off into the night. Harry Stainer grew up the oldest of five kids in a small green frame house in Merced, California, a farming community known as the gateway to Yosemite National Park. By all accounts, they were a regular blue-collar middle-class family. That is until one day in 1972, when a parent's worst nightmare came true. When Carrie was 11, his younger brother Steve, who was just seven, was walking home from school when he was abducted by a stranger who offered him a ride in his car. The man, Kenneth Parnell, told Steve that his parents didn't want him anymore, and the little boy was now going to live with him. Parnell changed Steve's name to Dennis Parnell. He also told the young boy to call him dad, and together they moved around Northern California, living in motels, cabins, and for a while, a remote trailer in Mendocino County. For seven years, Steve was held by Parnell, who regularly sexually abused the boy and forced him to take drugs and drink alcohol. While living in the remote trailer, Steve was enrolled in school under his new identity, and every day he took the bus to Mendocino High School, never letting on that anything was wrong. Then, in 1979, when Steve was 14 years old, Parnell abducted another child, a five-year-old boy named Timmy White. And that's when Steve Stainer snapped. He could not let another child suffer the way he had. One night, Steve snuck out of the trailer with the little boy, and together they hitchhiked to a police station, where he told officers the only thing he could remember about his former life was that his name was Stephen. As you can imagine, the return of Steve Stainer to his family was a media sensation. And that then uh, led to headlines up and down California and across the nation. It became a national story uh, about this kid who um, had heroically um, saved both himself, even though he had been molested um, many times over, and this other little kid and was then reunited with his his family in Merced. Camera crews and journalists descended on Merced for months following the miraculous return. Here's Steve on a TV talk show in 1980, just two weeks after his escape. You called him, I've been told that you called him dad. How long before you started calling him dad? Do you have any idea when that started? Um, That started about a week after my abduction. A best-selling book was also written about the boy's harrowing experience, and eventually a very popular TV miniseries aired on NBC. Both were called I Know My First Name is Stephen. 
Steve had a difficult time reintegrating into his former life, but somehow he moved on and found love. In 1985, Stainer married Jody Edmondson, and they had two children, a daughter, Ashley, and a son, Stephen Jr. But it seems that Steve Sr. was not meant to have a happy ending. On September 16, 1989, he was on his way home from work when his motorcycle collided with a car in a hit-and-run accident. Steve Stainer died. He was 24 years old. Through it all, Steve's older brother, Carrie, was quietly wrestling with his own demons while his family was distracted by Steve's disappearance, eventual return, and then his death. Uh, he had this habit of pulling hair out of his own head. I mean, he pulled out um, wads of hair out of his head to the point that he had bald spots all, all over his head and, and sore spots, and he had to wear a ball cap. From a young age, Carrie also struggled with inappropriate, obsessive thoughts, including one about holding a girl who lived next door against her will. His sisters and a cousin said he often spied on them and sometimes videotaped them. When Stephen returned, Carrie also became jealous of the attention his brother received, and he withdrew into himself, spending time drawing cartoons, something he was actually quite talented at. In 1979, his high school classmates voted him most creative in his graduating class. After high school, Carrie bounced around from job to job, doing everything from moving furniture to installing windows. During that time, he continued to struggle with impulses that he didn't understand, and he experienced fits of rage. Then, in the summer of 1997, Carrie Stainer took a job as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge in El Portal, near the entrance to Yosemite National Park. He handled plumbing jobs, arranged pool furniture, and countless other tasks during the busy summer months. In the winter of 1999, he was laid off because it was off-season, but he still lived in a room above the restaurant at the lodge. And it was during that time that he could no longer control his bottled-up impulses. On the night of February 15th, Carol Sund, along with her daughter Julie and friend Sylvina Peloso, retired to their room at the Cedar Lodge. Soon after, there was a knock on the door. And when Carol answered, Carrie Stainer was standing outside. He told her he was there to make a plumbing repair. So she let him in, but then Carrie pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and told them it was a robbery. What he did next is difficult to hear, and it may be upsetting for some. Carrie bound the three frightened women with duct tape and herded Julie and Sylvina into a bathroom. As the girls huddled in the bathroom, Carrie choked Carol to death. Sylvina was strangled next. Carrie then spent the next few hours sexually assaulting Julie. Early the next morning, he drove Julie to the Reservoir Overlook where he murdered the teenager and dumped her body. Afterwards, he burned the rental car with Carol and Sylvina's bodies in the trunk. Carrie took Carol's wallet and dumped it in Modesto to throw off authorities, which it clearly did. Remember, the location of the wallet was why FBI agents spent so much time investigating that group of drug dealers and ex-convicts when the real killer was practically under their noses at the Cedar Lodge waiting to strike again. On July 21st, Carrie Stainer drove to Forrester Road and Yosemite Park. He parked his car and began walking around the area looking for Bigfoot. Stainer had been fascinated with the mythical beast for a long time, 
and he believed that he had once spotted it in that area. While he was wandering around, he noticed something else in the distance that caught his eye. 26-year-old Joey Armstrong was loading up her pickup truck outside her cabin, and she appeared to be by herself. Stainer went back to his car and grabbed his murder kit, a backpack with a gun, knife, and duct tape. Then he approached Joey, making small talk about Bigfoot. Without warning, Stainer pulled out his gun and forced Joey into the cabin, where he brutally attacked her. He dragged her body outside, dumping it in a creek behind her cabin. Author Dennis McDougall says unlike his first murders, this time he wasn't very careful. He drove in his own uh, own vehicle to the, the cabin and they were able to track him down based on uh, the tire tracks and, and the uh, eyewitness um, reports from the neighbors or two or three neighbors who uh, saw this suspicious car going in and out of an area of, of uh, Yosemite that has very light traffic, if any at all. After Kerry Stainer was tracked down and questioned by officers who found him sunbathing in the nude by the river, he returned to the Cedar Lodge, packed up his belongings, and took off. He ended up at the Laguna del Sol nudist colony, three hours north of Yosemite, where he planned to hide out. But by now, his name and face had been plastered all over the news. A woman at the nudist colony recognized him and called authorities. When FBI agents arrived at Laguna del Sol, Kerry Stainer surrendered easily, almost as if he was waiting to be arrested. In fact, he had checked into the resort using his real name. Back at the Sacramento field office, it wouldn't take long before he confessed to killing Joey Armstrong. Author Dennis McDougall says Stainer was emotionless as he described details of the grisly murder. I don't think that he regarded any of it. The original three murders... um, and the brutal beheading of, uh, of uh, Ms. Armstrong as much more than a game. I think that he, his reaction um, was that of uh, a, a kid who's lost uh, at um, Donkey Kong and, you know, shrugs and says, well, I guess the jig is up. After confessing to the murder of Joey Armstrong, It took a bit more time, but eventually Stainer also admitted to killing Carol and Julie Sund and their friend Selvina Peloso. FBI agent James Maddock retracted his earlier statement that the cases weren't connected, and he announced that Stainer would be charged in both cases. Maddock also admitted that Stainer had previously been on their radar. Gary Stainer was interviewed by FBI agents and task force members in connection with the Sun Peloso case. He was not considered a suspect at the time this occurred. When news broke, those who had worked with Stainer for the past two years were stunned. Lisa Hansel, the general manager of the Cedar Lodge restaurant, wondered how they could have missed it. She told the news website SFGate, everyone living in this community knew and embraced this monster who was capable of such horrors. In a jailhouse interview three days after his arrest, Stainer told a San Francisco TV reporter that he had fantasized since childhood about murdering women. And he killed these four because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. In September 2000, the mother of Joey Armstrong arrived at a federal court in Fresno, California, wearing jewelry that once belonged to her daughter. 
From the front row of the courtroom, she wept silently as the man who murdered Joey was held accountable for his actions. Shackled hand and foot, dressed in a yellow prison jumpsuit, Stainer took a deep breath and shrugged his shoulders as he pleaded guilty to Joey's savage murder. In exchange for the plea, 39-year-old Stainer avoided the death penalty and was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. In the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, a plea agreement was not reached and Stainer was forced to stand trial. His lawyers conceded that Stainer killed the three women, but said he was insane at the time and should therefore be convicted of second-degree murder and avoid the death penalty. The jury disagreed. Following less than five hours of deliberations, they found Stainer guilty of three counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Dressed in a red jail jumpsuit, Stainer bowed his head but showed no emotion as the judge read out his death sentence three times, one for each victim. Following his convictions, investigators stated that they think Stainer may have additional victims, but no other charges have been laid. Today, Stainer remains on death row at San Quentin Prison, along with approximately 730 other prisoners. However, in 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order that placed an indefinite moratorium on capital punishment in California. He has also ordered the dismantling of death row at San Quentin by 2024. Prisoners like Stainer will be transferred to other facilities. In 2020, Carrie Stainer was in the news again for something unrelated to the Yosemite murders. He was one of thousands of prisoners who filed false claims to a COVID-related unemployment program, resulting in more than $140 million in erroneous payments. The women who lost their lives at the hands of Stainer have been continuously honored by those who knew and loved them. Francis and Carol Carrington established the Carol Sund Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation after their daughter. Between 1999 and 2009, it posted $3.5 million in reward money in over 540 different criminal cases across the United States, including the case of Lacey Peterson, who was murdered by her husband in 2002. And in 1999, the Joey Armstrong Memorial Fund was established by the nonprofit organization where she worked. Each year since then, it has funded a scholarship program in her name, which sends 12 young women between the ages of 15 and 18 on a 12-day backpacking expedition in Yosemite, taking in the magnificent beauty of the park. Thanks for listening to this episode, and thanks to my guest, Dennis McDougall, whose book about the case is called The Yosemite Murders. I'll put his info in the show notes. If you have an idea for a show, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me through social media and by email. I'm on Instagram at that90spodcast, and the email for the show is 90s at curiouscast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 